Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We're grateful to you for making it possible for us to share fellowship with you and with one another. I pray, my Father, that you take possession of my members. Speak through me. Minister to your people. Let your word come expressly. Drive it to the hearts of your people. That not only will we hear your word, but we will heed your word. This we have prayed in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. All right. Again, Pastor Bank, thank you for paying the price to bring the shift and the alignment. Introduction of the grace message has radically changed my life, and I've had to work overtime so I can catch up with all of you because you are sitting directly under it, and I'm having from close to 7,000 miles just have a peep into what is happening here. But I'm here to let you know, Pastor, that having followed what is happening in the house, work fund is in good hands. With Pastor Tosing and Pastor Shina and the Pope and uh, Pastor Landry and all of you, work fund is in good hands. And I think you should give the Lord a hand clap for that. Amen. And I'm saying that to honor Pastor Bank because that is the hallmark of a true minister that is called of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul the Apostle tells his son Timothy that that which you have heard of me among many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will also teach it to others. In other words, the success of a man's ministry is measured in the ability to replicate itself. And the message must go at least four levels or four generations. From Paul to Timothy to faithful men who would give it to others also. And so I am a product of your direct revelation. And so is the countless numbers of people that you have influenced. And so I am grateful to God that you paid the price to put us in this position where we can properly align with the vision of God. Hallelujah. The Judaizers who followed Paul wherever he went and challenged his ministry and message of grace in Corinth were actually challenging his apostleship. You know, we've got the first letter of Corinthians and then the second letter of Corinthians. The first letter to the Corinthians is an issue-oriented letter. Issue-oriented. And so Paul established the church in Corinth around 53 AD and then left to Ephesus and other places. He gets a letter from the household of Chloe and they posed a series of questions to him as to how a Christian needs to behave himself in the house of God. And so in response to those series of questions, he pens the first letter to the Corinthians. And so the first letter to the Corinthians is an issue-oriented letter. You read it and you say, you hear things like, I have heard that you are treating the Lord's table as a common meal. He addresses that. I have heard that you are taking each other to court over trivial matters. 
he will address that. I have heard, so it's an issue-oriented letter. Second Corinthians, however, is a letter that he writes back to them in defense of his apostleship. Because the Judaizers have also come back to Corinth. They have this tendency of going right after him and challenging his apostleship and telling them that Paul is not a true apostle. So he had to write 2 Corinthians to defend his apostleship. And so in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, for instance, of the book of 2 Corinthians, you will read these words. It says, therefore, since we have received this ministry, just as we have received mercy, we faint not. Now he begins to create a contrast between himself and then those Judaizers. He said, we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. That's verse 2. We are not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, this is the difference between us and the Judaizers. We are not fake apostles. We are the real apostles. In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, they were even accusing him of not having the right credentials. And so Paul comes and says that we don't need credentials. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, 2, 3. He said, we don't need credentials. When we look at you, you are letters. The people that sit under my ministry, you, the Corinthians, I don't need letters of commendations from any institution. You are my letters that is written and read off by of all men. Amen. So, Pastor Ben, we are your living epistles. But I'm here today to affirm the grace message and share with you for the few minutes I have left a message I have titled Grace in the Old Testament. Grace in the Old Testament. The grace message is not tangential to the gospel. Neither is it does it form the major part of the gospel? But the grace message is the gospel. The grace message is at the core, the front, and the center of the gospel. In other words, if you don't have the grace message, you don't have the gospel. You don't have a choice in the matter. You can't say, oh, you grace people will be here and we will be here. We'll do half of the law and we'll do half of grace. No. If you do half law and half grace, then you don't have the gospel. Because the gospel is grace. And grace is the gospel. Why is the grace message relevant? It's relevant for two reasons. Number one, it's relevant and it's important and doctrinally sound because no human being, as long as he remains a human being, can ever cross the line of infallibility. You can never meet the righteous standards of God on your own. Yes. Try as you may, you can't. There may be somebody that is sitting next to you, or your neighbor, that you might think that they don't go to church well, they drink aquatishing. You don't drink, so you are better than they are. Pastor Ibiki, can I borrow you for a minute? Can I borrow you too, sir? 
All right. Pastor IBK and Brother Greg here, clap for them. I'm giving you reason number one why the gospel, the grace message is relevant. And I said it is because no man can ever cross the line of infallibility and you cannot attain righteousness by your own merit. Righteousness is not meritorious. You don't merit it. It is something to which you submit. You don't work for it. And that's grace. Romans chapter 10 verse 1, 2, 3, 4. He said, my brethren, my prayer and heart desire for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but that zeal is not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of the righteousness of God have gone about to establish their own righteousness without submitting to the righteousness. So whatever the righteousness of God is, it is something to which you submit. You don't work for. So I became is taller than him. <laughs> so IBK can look at Brother Greg and boast to him that I am taller than you are. Because IBK is using his own moral codes and standards as his standard. He drinks Akwetashin. He does not. <laughs> anyway, how many of you know what Akwetashin is? Do you call it Akwetashin in Nigeria? It's, it's, it's this local gene that is brewed in Africa. The thing is, anybody I've ever seen drinking that thing, when they sip it, they squeeze their face. <laughs> because of the potency. It's called Kai Kai. It has so many names. A lot of euphemisms. Akwetesh, Kai Kai, you know, Ogogoro. Ah! God will deliver all of you. In Jesus' name, say amen. So, because IBK is taller than him, or his moral standards are higher, he can look to him and say, He is a sinner and I'm, I'm righteous. IBK could say that because he's making his own ability. The standard. But IBK, both of you, reach out and change the light bulb there for me. Oh, you're taller than him. Reach out and change it. You can't. Okay. The moment the standards of righteousness was increased, he can no longer boast in his ability. For all have seen and fallen so regardless of his height, when Jesus stands next to him in his righteousness, all of a sudden he is a short man too. Please take your seats. So righteousness in your own eyes is foolishness. Because the standard to measure righteousness is not your ability to make happen. That's why the grace message is relevant. Because you can't attain the righteousness of God on your own. The second reason which will transition me into the main message is the fact that the grace message 
has always been God's plan of salvation throughout redemptive history. Period. God never imposed a works righteousness system upon the law. It was the Jews that did it. Find anywhere in the Bible and come and show to me where God says works righteousness system is approved by me. Works righteousness system. In other words, you work out your own righteousness. You can't find it because it's not there. That's why the grace message is relevant because it has been God's preferred message or preference for salvation throughout redemptive history. To that, we go to the book of Genesis. And because of time, I'm going to breeze through this. I'm going to look at three or four Old Testament characters in Genesis to prove my point. We come to Jesus Christ, talk about him a little bit, and then you'll be dismissed to go and eat kinky. Amen? The first example, Adam and Eve. When you read Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, the text there seems like it's out of place. It's anachronistic. It does not belong there. Because it's talking about some things, uh, how God made Adam in chapter 2, I mean, chapter 127, chapter 2, God makes Adam fall asleep, and then he creates Eve out of him, and things like that. And then it's like, Moses, who is the writer of Genesis, just puts verse, 20, uh, verse 15 there, as if it has, it, it, like, it really, then the Lord God took the man, no, not there, um, give me 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Very anachronistic. Study chapter 2. It does not belong. You would have to go to the next chapter to see the relevance of that. Why were they both naked and not ashamed? Because they did not know the difference between good and bad. They were in their perfect state of creation. But after the serpent was introduced and he de deceived Eve and they ate of the fruit that God told them not to eat of, the Bible said their eyes were open. And the first consequence of their eyes being open will now let you see the importance of verse 25 of chapter 2. It said their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. God comes to the garden every day in the cool of the day to have a conversation with Adam and Eve. On the day this happened, God showed up all the same. Ah, that's grace. Yes. <laughs> that's grace. You have committed an infraction. Yes, the person you injured is coming to look for you. That's the first manifestation of grace. Adam! Where are you? You think God didn't know where Adam was? 
he knew exactly which tree he was hiding behind. Because Hebrews chapter 4 will tell you that nothing is hidden from his presence. Adam, where are you? We were naked. And therefore, we were hiding from you. Ah! Who told you you were naked? For all this while, I have been coming in the cool of the day to have fellowship with you. You have been naked. It didn't bother me. Why is it a problem for you now? Because sin has entered. So God's next question, Adam, have you eaten of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? And in an attempt to cover up their shame, they used a needle and a thread. So the needle is the first tool to have been invented by man. They used a needle and a thread, patched some fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. You know, we've been trying to cover our nakedness since then. But from that scripture, I am telling you today, if you are not saved, you are not born again, you are not walking in grace, you can be wearing Versace today, but you are still naked. You're spiritually naked. Why do you think the New Testament says, put on Jesus Christ? Because Christ as a person is the prescribed dress code. That satisfies the righteousness of God. Every other thing is fig leaves. You know the fashion industry is a 2.4 trillion dollar industry. If you match it against GDP of nations, it will rank the seventh. The fashion industry. And it started in the garden. They were hiding. And that was the first mission impossible. Adam and Eve trying to hide. It's mission impossible. You can't hide from God. Hallelujah. So God comes and says, I see what you are trying to do. Shame and guilt is eating you up because you have sinned. And as a consequence of that, you want to devise your own means, works. To create some form of righteousness that will appease me. But I am here to tell you, Adam, that your effort is at best futile. Second manifestation of grace. God then takes a lamb. Slays the lamb. Uses the skin to cover them up. Said, your attempt is futile. This is the way it must be done. And the first act of imputation took place in the garden when God slew an animal and used the skin to cover them up. Subsequent throughout the rest of the scripture, slaying of a lamb or an animal by way of imputation becomes a major motif. The same thing happened to Cain and Abel. Abel was accepted. We shall come to him. And so you have one man, a lamb for one man. By the time you come to Exodus chapter 12, during the Passover, 
God says, take a lamb and slay it. Use the blood on a lintel and on the doorpost. For when the angel, the death angel comes and sees the blood, it shall jump over it or pass over it. So in Exodus chapter 12, you had a lamb for a family. After that, when the law was instituted and the high priest needs to sacrifice on behalf of the nation, you now get a lamb for a nation. So from a lamb for a man to a lamb for a family to a lamb for a nation. And by the time you get to the New Testament, John the Baptist was standing at the banks of the Jordan River and he says, Behold the Lamb of the Lord that takes away the sins of what? So a lamb for an individual, lamb for family, lamb for a nation, to a lamb for the whole world. In other words, what God did for Adam and Eve was futuristically looking at what Jesus will come and do. Why is that important? That is important because that is the only way we can be imputed with righteousness. Hallelujah. Thirdly, for Adam and Eve. So number one, for Adam and Eve, God slays an animal. Secondly, secondly now, secondly, God gives them a promise in chapter 3 verse 15. It became the first messianic prophecy way back in Genesis chapter 3 talking about Jesus Christ. I'll put enmity between you talking about the serpent and, and, and Eve between you and the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your heels and in the process you will bruise his heels. God gives them a prophecy or a promise about a seed which is the seed of the woman. It is interesting. Why is Jesus the seed of the woman? He's the seed of the woman because his conception was without the participation of a man. Men usually produce seed for women to conceive. But in his case, he's the seed of the woman because there is no human being, man, male participation in his conception. So he is the seed of the woman. So the second act of grace that God gave to them was the fact that he made them a promise of a seed that will come and bring redemption to humanity. This is way back in Genesis. The third act of grace was when God drove them away from the garden. Now, somebody will say, well, that is harsh. But it was an act of grace. You know why? God says, now that your eyes are open and you know good from evil, we need to drive you out of here lest you go and also eat of the tree of life and then you live forever in your sinful condition. So because I have a plan to redeem you and the rest of your tribe in the future, I've got to put up a plan where I will save you from yourself. It's an act of grace. Driving them out of, the world, out of the garden and planting cherubims with flaming swords to guard the tree of life is an act of grace. And so when you talk about grace, the people who are opposed to the grace message and are saying grace is licensed to see, you know, they don't understand. This is Genesis and God is displaying grace. If you understand the grace message, grace does not make you sin. Grace makes you run away from sin. 
addresses that in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? No, God forbid. How shall we who are saved, who are saved, live any longer in sin? You come down from verse 15 down. It says that, shall we also continue to live in sin because we are not under the law? He said, God forbid. Know ye not that whosoever to whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are, whether of sin unto disobedience unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. In other words, when you come to Christ, what grace does is that it takes you from one level of slavery and puts you into another level. By all means, you are a slave. Grace picks you from being a slave to sin and makes you a slave of righteousness. Second character, Old Testament character. Not very far from Adam and Eve. We come to Cain. Did you know that Cain and Abel were never instructed by God to bring a sacrifice? That's the erroneous idea we have. But that's not what the scripture says. They just brought sacrifices to God. God never asked for it. Abel came by way of what I presume his parents would have taught him that this is what God did for us to cover our nakedness. So he followed their example and brought a lamb. And the lamb was accepted. Cain, on the other hand, decides he will bring fruit. That was not accepted. And he was enraged. What is the act of grace here? In his anger, God calls him, chapter 4, verse 7, and cautions him. He says, why are you angry? If you did right, will you not also be accepted? Or in other words, if you do right, you will be accepted. You know what that means? It means that if Cain had reversed courses and gone back to take an animal and sacrifice that animal, it would have nullified his initial sacrifice. Are you getting what I'm trying to say? There is something about the blood. Even in Exodus chapter 12, did you know the target for the death angel in Egypt during the Passover was the firstborn male sons of the Egyptians? And the chief target was the son of Pharaoh. Did you know that if Pharaoh's son had made his way into a Jewish home that had the blood, he would have been saved? Because it has nothing to do with the personality. It has to do with the symbol. Yes. Revelation 13, 9. He is the lamb of God that was slain from before the foundations of the earth. So Cain slays his brother. God is just a gracious God. Let's lift up your hands and say, I thank you, gracious father. Slays his brother. God comes. Ask him the same rhetorical question that he asked his parents. Cain, where is your brother? The first question that man ever asked God 
displays our arrogance. And it was from Cain. After you have killed your brother, meanwhile you were warned before you killed him. It's a sin, it's lying at your door. Yet he did it. Second act of grace. Even though he killed his brother, God still came to him. He said, where is your brother? First question that man will ever ask God. Am I my brother's keeper? Just think about that. Am I my brother's keeper? God decided to make him a cosmic fugitive. He said, I'm driving you away. You'll be roaming the surface of the earth. Now, this cosmic fugitive now gets into a dialogue with God. He said, oh, by the way, since you have driven me away and I'll be wandering all over the planet, when somebody kills me, won't they slay me? Look at the graciousness of this God. Anybody who tells you the grace message is not proper doctrine, tell them they need to go and study their Bible. God has been a gracious God throughout redemptive history. This convicted murderer is going into a negotiation with a God that he has inflicted insults upon. God says, I will put a mark on you that you will be protected. Not just that. Again, pastor, God told him, whoever slays you, I will take vengeance on them seven times. You tell me God is not gracious? For a man that has committed such a heinous crime, God is saying, whoever touches you, I will slay them seven times. You know why? Because God is prodding him and nudging him in the way of repentance. You have to look at verse 7 to see that. He said, when you do it right, the way your brother did, you will be accepted. In other words, find some common sense. Go grab a lamp and come and bring it to me and I will accept you. That's grace, y'all. Listen, my friends, don't fool yourself. Step away from the arrogance of your self-righteousness. Because of time. Abel. Abel also brings a lamb and he's accepted. Now you have to come to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the object of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen for by it. See, those days when people were claiming, well, I guess some people still do. They're naming and claiming it doctrine people. See somebody driving a Maybach. By faith, I claim this Maybach. By faith. Oh, that's what you use your faith for, huh? To acquire things. Read Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. See, he said, well, by faith, faith is a substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. I haven't seen this, but I receive it. Your Maybach, I got it. Yeah, you know. When you tell from the tongues, they are even praying, you know, he's not going anywhere. <laughs> but there's another definition of faith in that same verse 1. It says, for by it, the elders obtain 
a good report. That's also another definition of faith. So the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 lists for us these Old Testament characters that walked by faith and believed God by faith and by extension they walked in grace. The first on the list was Abel. Adam and Eve were skipped not necessarily because they sinned but because they didn't have to exercise faith in God. They saw God. They talked with him. So the rest of the hall of faith is, if you will, an acknowledgement of those of the tribe of Adam that came after them who never saw God physically but had to exercise faith so they can receive his grace. And the first on the honor roll was Abel. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. There are 1,189 chapters in the entire Bible. And of these 1,189, the first 11 chapters are the foundation for the rest. In these first 11 chapters, there are four consequential events that took place. The creation of all things, the fall of man, the Tower of Babel, and the universal deluge. The flood. During these four consequential events, God raised three men, according to Hebrews chapter 11, that would defend him and walk by faith and grace. Abel. The second person is who we are going to talk about next. Enoch. Ha, by faith, Enoch walked with God and he was not found. Enoch, unlike Abraham, sir, was not the father of many nations. Enoch did not build cities like Cain did. Enoch never built an ark like Noah did. In fact, if you judge him by the standards of our day, Enoch would have been a failure because he never had any earthly possessions. Yet the Bible deemed the feet to record him in Hebrews 11. By faith! Enoch walked with God and he was not found. <laughs> even though he was not the father of many nations, even though he never built a city, even though he never built an ark, he had this testimony that before his translation, he pleased God. That was his testimony. I don't know about you, but I have to forget all the Look, you can't give me every Thursday I'm hosting my school. Oh, by the way, pastor, since you left, I've registered the school. It is called the Word Institute. We meet on Thursdays where I, treat, I teach pastors. You can't give me a pot of gold to give you my Thursdays now. I won't do it. Why? I want the testimony of Enoch. That before my translation, I should have this testimony that I please God. How did he please God? Genesis chapter 5. Enoch was 65 years when he gave birth to his son. The name of the son is Methuselah. 
The meaning of Methuselah is son of the dart or son of the javelin. How many of you know javelin? When you throw the javelin, wherever it lands, it makes a mark. Just look it up, my friends. Son of the javelin. Why is he son of the javelin? Another meaning of Methuselah is when he is dead, it shall come. In other words, wherever his life terminates or lands, it will make a mark. What will come? The universal deluge. So if God told, I'm, going to, I'm telling you about the graciousness of God. Now. If God said the day this man dies is the day I will destroy the earth with water. Guess how gracious God is. Methuselah lived to be the longest living human being ever. That's grace. That's grace. Are you understanding what I'm saying? 969 years. I'll do the math for you. Somebody has a calculator? Go to Genesis chapter 5 verse 27. Genesis 5 27 tells you the age of Methuselah. It said Methuselah lived to be 969 years. You have your calculator? Okay. Now go to Genesis 5 25. It tells you the age Methuselah was when he gave birth to Lamech, his son. What's the age? 187, right? Okay. Now go to Genesis 5, 28. It will tell you the age Lamech was when he gave birth to his son, Noah. How old is that? So add 187 and 182. What do you get? 187 and 182, right? What? 369. Now go to Genesis 7, 6. It will tell you the age that Noah was on the day the rain came. He said he was 600 years. Add 600 to it. 969. The day Methuselah died, the rain came. Why did Methuselah live to be 969? Have you heard the scripture that says a thousand years is like a day? That's when God is in grace mode. He can wait for 1,000 years and to him it will be like a day. <laughs> You want to tell me that grace is a New Testament phenomenon? You must not know your Bible. Hallelujah. Why is grace in the New Old Testament? Grace is in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is about Christ. And Christ is grace. Where is Christ in the Old Testament? From the very first chapter of the very first verse. In the beginning was the word. No, no, no. It says, in the beginning God created. 
And John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was, so what created was the word. Listen, my friends, God never imposed a works righteousness system upon the Old Testament. There is enough scripture in the Old Testament for Old Testament saints to have gotten saved by grace. Before you stone me, let me prove it to you. John chapter 5 verse 39. John 5 39. Jesus says you cite the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. But they are what? They which testify of. Whenever in the New Testament you read the scriptures say. Know that it is talking about Old Testament. Because the New Testament was not written then. And whenever, another interpretative key, whenever you're reading the New Testament and you hear, read Moses. It's talking about the Old Testament. There are three different ways the New Testament references the Old Testament. It says Moses. Another occasion he will say Moses and the prophets. Another occasion he will say the prophets and the writings. Or another occasion he will say the prophets and the Psalms. Because the Psalms represents the writings. That's the poetical books. Now, John chapter 5, read for me, no, give me verse 45. Oh, wow, my time is gone, huh? He said, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. That's Jesus talking to the Pharisees. There is one who accuses you. In other words, on the judgment day when you stand before God, I will not be the prosecution witness against you. The prosecution witness against you will be Moses. In whom you trust. 46. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he did what? Ah, 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe in my words? In other words, I am grace. And Moses talked about grace. Because of time. Luke chapter 50, 16. Let me just paraphrase it for you. In Luke 16, you know what is there. Lazarus and the rich man. The story that Jesus concocted to make a point. They both died and they went up. Lazarus, because he was a descendant of Abraham, went to the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man went to hell. The rich man was in torment, saw Lazarus enjoying. He said, can you dip your, feet, your, your finger in water and come and cool my tongue? Abraham said, it's not possible. There's a fixed gulf between the two of us. He said, the next thing he said is, okay, if that is so, send him to go back to the earth, for I have some brothers there who are very, very, very stubborn. Take the story up in verse 27. Luke 16, 27. Then he said to him, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Yes. For I have five brothers that they may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Yes. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and what? The prophets. Let them hear him. In other words, they have the Old Testament. 
if they can believe the Old Testament and read it, they will find me, Jesus, and they won't have to come to hell. Remember what I told you? Moses and the prophet stands for what? The Old Testament. Read on. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if goes, one goes to them from the dead, they will not repent. Yes. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophet, neither would they be persuaded though one rises from the dead. Grace is throughout the Bible. Because the Old Testament is full of grace. Why? Because he speaks about Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, 16, 17. And from a child, verse 15, from a child, thou hast known the holy scriptures. How that it is able to make the wise unto salvation by faith, which is in what? Christ Jesus. You have known the Old Testament since you were a child. That it can give you salvation by faith in Christ. The Old Testament. All scripture is written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian Enoch was coming. He's a proselyte to Judaism. Was coming back to Ethiopia. He was the chief financial officer of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And then he was reading the book of Isaiah 53. He was reading it. The Holy Ghost picks up um, Simon from the middle of a revival. He said, go to the wilderness. He gets there, Philip. He said, join yourself to him. He joined himself to him. And he said, do you understand the scripture you are reading? He said, how can I understand? Unless somebody explain it to me. And the Bible says, Philip, beginning at the same scripture, preach Christ unto him. Christ is throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15 I put enmity between you and the woman. Her seed and you. He shall bruise your head, you shall bite his heel. Genesis 49 verse 10 is talking about Christ. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, neither a lawgiver from between thy feet until Shiloh come. Deuteronomy 18.18 is talking about Christ. Another prophet shall the Lord your God give unto you like unto me, him shall you hear. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. It says that unto us a child is born and a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be wonderful, mighty God, counsel everlasting. The, of the reign and increase of his government, there shall be no end. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall give birth and it shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 28 16. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tri-stone, a precious cornerstone. He that believes in me shall never you want more? Micah 5 2. Oh, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though that be little among the thousands, yet out from thee shall come forth he that is to be king in Israel, whose going forth is from everlasting to everlasting. Isaiah 53. He was bruised for our transgressions. Chastisements of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes. Christ is in the Old Testament. Therefore, grace is in the Old Testament. God bless you.